Please uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles uh, 33. 2 Chronicles 33. It'll be maybe a third of the way through your Bible. As you turn there, a couple of comments uh, by way of introduction to our text. First, you may have noticed that my sermon title was printed in the bulletin as TBD. Uh, That is what happens uh, when I don't give Melinda my information in time. Uh, Secondly, I'm going to read all 25 verses of uh, the chapter, not the first 20, as will be uh, printed uh, on the screen. And third, I hope and pray that that's not an indication of the organization that we can expect in the sermon uh, this morning. Uh, But let's look at 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, And the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and of the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel, And raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless... The people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayers to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty 
And all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon, incur- but this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon, And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, this is your word. And may that fact be impressed upon us as we've just heard it, as we consider it together. And may you by your spirit take your word to build your people up in faith and to drive us to a deeper, more intimate acquaintance with who you are. And Lord, for those who come, Lord, who have have not worshipped at the foot of the cross yet, we pray that you would do a work by your Spirit to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the uh, kids are finally in bed, my wife and I will sometimes sit down and watch a a television show together. And our favorite uh, type of show tends to be British crime dramas. Uh, We particularly like serial dramas as opposed to procedural ones. Uh, Serial dramas are shows that uh, have a storyline which span uh, the entire season uh, or or, uh, even longer than that as opposed to procedural dramas where the story is sort of self-contained. Well, the story of King Manasseh that we turn our attention to today is like a serial drama. We need to know something about the larger storyline that this particular episode is a part of. We need to know something about how this story fits not only within the larger story of Chronicles, but within the larger story of the Bible. And the story goes all the way back to the first pages of the Bible when God places the first man and woman in the garden paradise that he had made for them. And together, this man and woman were to speak God's truth, they were to enjoy God's presence, and they were to rule God's creation. But if you know your Bible, you know that this first couple, Adam and Eve, were not true to their calling. They proudly rejected God by disobeying His command. This is what the Bible calls sin. And as a result, they were exiled from the garden. The world came under a curse and man became subject to death. All the misery, all the brokenness in this world flows from this corrupted source. Humanities fall into sin. And while the human race justly stood accused of treason against its maker, standing as, as cosmic vandals against uh, uh, their, their maker, the creation was plunged into futility. And yet the Bible tells us that God, being rich in mercy, initiated a rescue mission. And this is where Israel, and more specifically the tribe of Judah, comes in. Because God chose one nation, and from that nation, one tribe out of all the world by which he would roll back the curse 
of sin and accomplish his saving work. This is the the storyline that we trace in the Old Testament. From Abraham to Moses to King David to the prophets, God was working out his salvation plan through his people. And God would bring his people into the land of Canaan. And they were called there, like Adam and like Eve, to speak God's truth, to enjoy God's presence, and to rule over God's creation. And if they were faithful to their calling... God told his people that he would bless them. He would establish them in the land. But if, like Adam, they were unfaithful to their calling, God would drive them out of the land also. But once again, there's a problem. Sin runs deep, so deep that the kings of Israel were not faithful to their divine calling to speak God's truth, enjoy God's presence, and rule over God's people. In fact, many of the kings did quite the opposite. They spoke falsely, they worshipped wrongly, they ruled unjustly. King after king after king, with only a few notable exceptions, failed in their calling and forsook their God. And this is the tragic story of God's people that the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings uh, uh, records for us. Now the story of King Manasseh is actually told twice in the Bible. Besides our account today, you can actually read about it in 2 Kings 21, and I'd encourage you to do that because it's interesting that while Chronicles and Kings both record the same history of Israel, and they record uh, the story of King Manasseh, they tell the story in a very different way. The stories don't contradict each other, but they're told with different purposes in mind. The book of Kings is written for God's people as they're in exile. They've experienced the trauma of military defeat. And they need an explanation for how God could allow such a terrible thing to happen to his people. And so if you read through the book of Kings, you see that Kings is constantly emphasizing uh, uh, that it wasn't God who had abandoned his people, but it was his people who had forsaken him. So there's a strong emphasis on the sin of the people. Chronicles, however, is written after God's people had returned uh, from uh, exile, from captivity. And therefore, if you're reading through Chronicles, you'll notice that it's more hopeful than kings. And it's written to tell God's people how, in light of their deliverance from exile, they should live if they want to experience God's blessing and favor. And so for this reason... While Kings focuses exclusively on King Manasseh's great wickedness, the chronicler shows us that the wicked, here's Manasseh, the wickedest, longest ruling king of Judah, that as he humbles himself before the Lord in repentance, the Lord remembers him and restores him. In King Manasseh's example, we're meant to see that God's people will enjoy his blessing as they respond to his grace by living a life of continued repentance. Now, whoever the author of Chronicles was, he's a gifted writer because he's skillfully composed this story with two parts, with a a significant hinge or turning point between these two parts. 
The structure of, of the story sort of resembles uh, the nosedive uh, of a plane. So you've got the first 11 verses where things are, are going, uh, looking really bad, and then suddenly uh, there's, there's this upward turn that we see in verse 12. And verse 12 is, is the, the critical moment in the middle of the story. It's the explanatory key to really getting what's going on here. And we're going to look at that shortly, but before we look at the good part and the upward turn, we need to cover the bad part. The nosedive in verses 1 through 11. And there's no mistaking how the chronicler assesses the early days of King Manasseh's reign. They were a moral, political, spiritual train wreck. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, it wasn't just that Manasseh did what was evil, but his conduct was even more deplorable than any of the other nations whom God had driven out before Israel when he brought them into the promised land. Uh, it was, his sins were, were worse than the Canaanites, whose sin was so heinous that God says earlier in the Old Testament that God caused the land to vomit them up. Now remember that when God had cho- his, his, brought his chosen people into the land, he did so so that they could be a witness to the surrounding people, so that the people around Israel would know who God truly was. And yet King Manasseh uh, not only imitates those idolatrous nations, but he's more wicked than them. Now verses 3 through 7 give us the list of charges that are laid to Manasseh's account, and they're serious. As Judah's king, Manasseh failed to protect God's people from harmful spiritual influences. He corrupted the worship of God, and he led God's people astray. Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father had destroyed. These high places were locations where people either worshipped other gods or they worshipped the Lord in a way that the Lord had not authorized. These high places communicated that the people thought that they could deal with whatever God they wanted or in whatever way they wanted. They could deal with God on their terms. The high places symbolized a willful pride of the people. Manasseh not only promoted worship in the wrong way and in the wrong places, but he also flagrantly promoted the worship of false gods. He set up worship to pagan fertility gods, Baal and Asherah, and he worshiped the sun, moon, stars, and planets. Connected to this idolatry was the terrible practice of child sacrifice. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He was so committed to his idols that he was willing to sacrifice his children, to murder them. He practiced sorcery, fortune-telling, and consulted with the spirits of the dead. And yet, as abhorrent as these sins were, the gravest of the sins that Manasseh committed, perhaps surprisingly to us, was this, that he built an, altar, he built an idol and he set it in the house of the Lord, in the temple of God. This is the final climactic sin that's mentioned. Now to understand why this is so bad, we need to understand that the temple was the place where the God of Israel had chosen to stoop down and to be with his people, to fix his name and his reputation and his glory to this place. And though God fills the heavens and the earth, yet he he attached his, his name to this place. Here's how one commentator put it. The presence of God's name meant that God's eyes and God's heart were in the temple. Now, without being 
uh, overly sensational or crass here, given that the Bible describes worship as uh, the worship of other gods as a form of spiritual adultery, we might say that Manasseh's sin here was like a wife embracing an illicit lover in front of her husband. Manasseh's sin was that shocking. It was that offensive. Right before the eyes of the Lord, so to speak, Manasseh leads the people into the amorous embrace of these pagan idols. And yet, God's patience is on display in his, in his response to Manasseh. His patience is on display that it might lead to his repentance. Because not only had God spoken to Manasseh through the scriptures given through Moses, but he sent prophets and preachers to Manasseh and to the people to warn them of the danger they were in. God speaks to Manasseh and and to the people through these messengers saying, watch out, repent, turn. But we we have these haunting words. But they paid no attention. They were busy. They were preoccupied. They weren't interested. They didn't think it was worth their time. What sobering words to read. For God, in an exercise of his perfect patience, he's nudging, he's prodding, he's speaking, he's warning, and the people just continue in their way, ignorant or indifferent to the danger that their rebellion against God puts them in. I've told this story before, but uh, it was as an 18-year-old, I remember uh, being struck by this disturbing Sense, and it was what, in part, led me into pastoral ministry. I was a journalism major, and I spent my days in one of the world's largest and greatest cities. There were millions of people all around me, men and women shuttling off to work or school, eating and drinking, taking in shows and sports, finding love and raising families, and yet suppressing the truth about God worshiping self and sex and stuff, choosing to live life on their own terms, not God's, dismissing any thought of God's future judgment, paying no attention to their spiritual need. And this is what it was like in Jerusalem. Manasseh and the people of Judah were like people who carry on with their own plans even while the tornado siren is blasting, warning them to flee to safety. And because they would not hear, Manasseh's impenitence was met with the storm of God's judgment, brought through the king of Assyria. God, through the enemies of Judah, came crashing down in judgment on Manasseh, and Manasseh, humiliated, is chained up, and he's brought off into exile. And this is the the nadir, this is the lowest point in the nosedive of King Manasseh's life. But then we come to the central and critical point in Manasseh's story. Verse 12, it's the key to understanding, as I've said. And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, we don't know much about Manasseh's captivity. How long was he there? Under what conditions uh, did he live? But as he languished as a king without a kingdom... A hapless and humiliated exile. We do know that Manasseh was led to pray. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God. 
Literally, the idea is captured. Manasseh sought the favor of God's face. This wicked, immoral, idolatrous king whose entire reign was characterized up to this point by turning his back to God, having his own way, now goes and he turns to him and cries out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But does this cry out a sort of crisis foxhole prayer, asking for God to cut him a break? That's just worldly sore. Nor is he just admitting that he's wrong. God, I messed up. Sometimes people make, uh, uh, they, they mistake these sorts of things for repentance. You ask, are you repenting? They say, yes. Why do you say that? Well, I feel bad and I've asked God to forgive me. Well, crying out to God and confessing our sins, they're parts of repentance, but they're not repentance. To say otherwise is, is like saying, because you have four wheels and a steering wheel, you have a car. Repentance also involves humbly submitting to God. It involves the the proud, willful spirit hell-bound on doing what he or she wants, being turned around and coming under God's rule. It's the man who has insisted on holding on to his grievances, choosing to release them in forgiveness because that's what God commands. It's the woman who no longer uses her, her words to tear down and to destroy, but to bless. It's the angry man putting on gentleness. And this is what we see in Manasseh. In repentance, his rebellious heart is conquered by God and now he submits to God's rule. Now we must not miss what a faith-filled turn this is in Manasseh's life. I very purposely say faith-filled turn because the author of Chronicles is once again very strategically wanting us to make an important connection. Now, if you want to see this connection for yourself, you can turn back a few chapters in your Bible to 2 Chronicles 7. In 2 Chronicles 7, we see the the dedication of the temple that uh, King Solomon had built for the Lord, the same temple that uh, Manasseh had so brazenly defiled with his idolatry. But in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, we hear God speaking to King Solomon. And he says that he will set his name on the temple, and as a result, Whenever God's people came under judgment for their sin, if they would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, God says, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You hear how, how, how our story picks up this language of divine promise? and shows this promise being exercised, put to the test in Manasseh's life. When the, when the chronicler is retelling Manasseh's story, he wants us to see that in his distress, Manasseh came to the end of himself, and then he took hold of God's promised means by which God said he would experience mercy. And so we see that Manasseh's repentance consists in a, a prayerful turn to God, appealing for mercy, which implies that he's recognized his sin, And secondly, a humble submission to God, submitting to God's rule. But there's a third aspect of Manasseh's repentance that we should notice. Verses 14 to 17 intend to show us Manasseh's repentance being worked out. In the language of the Shorter Catechism, uh, Manasseh, uh, his repentance involves turning from sin to a new obedience. Whereas in verses 1 through 11, we see Manasseh, he's presented as a man who leads God's people away from 
a right understanding of God. He leads them away from a right worship of God. And as a result, he brings them under the judgment of God. In verse 14 to 17, we see the exact opposite happening as Manasseh turns in a new direction. First, he rebuilds the wall that protected Jerusalem from its enemies. He reinforces the armies that protected Judah. Manasseh's apostasy, his sin, exposes God's people to harm. His repentance fortifies them against their enemies. Then he removes the foreign gods and idols from the temple and the surrounding area, and he he throws them in the trash heap. His sin had corrupted the worship of God. His repentance involves a renewal of right worship of the Lord. And while Manasseh had previously led God's people away from a right understanding of God in repentance, Manasseh directs them to worship the Lord, as we see in verse 16. So we see that repentance is not just seeing our sin and not just stopping our sin, but swiveling from our sin to walk in a new direction. And yet, while the people's repentance is not complete, as we see in verse 17, it shows us in some sense the lingering consequence of Manasseh's sin. The Lord blesses Manasseh's repentance and he prospers his turning back to the Lord. Now, we might rightly and succinctly summarize the main point of Manasseh's story by saying that's a story about repentance. In fact, I think that there's few stories in the Bible that illustrate as clearly uh, this idea of repentance as Manasseh's story. Think of, of the New Testament, how the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Well, if we're looking at the Old Testament, we might say of Manasseh that he was the chief of sinners in the Old Testament. Everything that a king of Judah was not supposed to do, Manasseh did. And yet, we see that when he humbled himself before the Lord, asking for mercy, the Lord responded and he answered favorably to his cry. And there's something shocking, there's something scandalous about God's gracious response to Manasseh if we're thinking about it. It means that one day when God's people are raised from the dead, gathered together, you could find yourself, if if you are are one of God's people, you could find yourself standing shoulder to shoulder with this king who someone called the worst miscreant in Judah's history. And not just him, but we know from scripture that the new heavens and the new earth will have in all sorts of people who were adulterers and addicts, terrorists and thieves, abortionists and abusers. Now, to be clear, the Bible says that such uh, people will not enjoy God's salvation if they remain in their sin or insist in holding on to it. That's true for all of us. No one may expect to be saved apart from genuine repentance. But the scandalous message of the Bible is that wherever God gives the grace of repentance, he responds by giving more and more grace even to the worst of sinners, even to Manasseh. This is the reason why God sent his son. The surprising news of the Bible is that Jesus came to earth. He obeyed God perfectly in a way that Adam and Israel and the kings did not do. And then he suffered and he died so that whoever would turn to him and repent will have their sins, even the most vile, even the most offensive, blotted out forever in the sight of God. Jesus was hung on the cross so that his people might be given repentance and receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the apostolic message. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've not dealt truly and sincerely with God and repented of your sinful insistence to live life on your own terms, not his, even if you've grown up in the church, then Jesus commands you while there's still time to repent that you might receive the forgiveness of your sins. And he commands this because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And if you would escape the condemnation that your sins deserve, you must repent. If you have not repented of your sin before God, may today be that day that you, like Manasseh, cry out to God that you might obtain his mercy. But, and this is really important, as true as all of that is, and it is true, if we just close the sermon here, we'd miss out on hearing all that God wants to say to us. And that's because when we think about repentance, some of us may think about it as the doorway into the Christian life. It's what people out there need to do to get in here. It's what our unconverted family and friends need to do. And truly, when Manasseh cries out to the Lord, he turns in repentance, it's a gracious work that brings him out from under the judgment of God and into his favor. But we need to remember that Chronicles is not primarily written to people who are out there. It's written to God's people. Manasseh's story is a call to repentance, but it's first of all, a call to those who are inside the church to a life of continued repentance. For you see, Chronicles was written to a people very much like us. Those who would have read Chronicles uh, at first, they had experienced God's promised redemption as they were brought out from exile and into the land of promise, and yet they knew that they had not experienced the fullness of God's covenantal blessing. The temple wasn't completed yet. Sin, sin, sin still lingered. The enemies of God's people still lurked. And so they were waiting for the consummation of God's promises, just as we are today. Because as Christians, we, we share in this in-between status. Because on the one hand, we've been uh, redeemed as we've trusted in Christ. We've been rescued from bondage uh, to Satan and to our sin. But at the same time, we're awaiting the full measure of our redemption, of God's promised salvation. And in this book, the chronicler is asking the question, how are we now to live as we're in this in-between stage between the redemption that we've experienced and the fullness of that redemption which we expect? And part of his answer is this. As we wait, as we're in this in-between, if we want to live a life blessed by God, we must live a life of faith-filled repentance. Manasseh's example is given as an example to God's people of the humble, prayerful repentance that we, as God's people, must continually walk in. It was Martin Luther, you might recall, who famously said in the first of his 95 theses that the entire Christian life is one of continual repentance. It's not just something that we did many years ago. We're to be daily confronted with the reality of our sin, the sin that remains in us, and to be humbled before God. When is the last time that you or I, as a Christian, humbled ourselves privately, sincerely before the Lord, and we cried out for our sins and pleaded with God to help us 
turn back to him in a specific area in our life. There are many reasons why this doesn't characterize our lives like it should. We're distracted by work. We don't slow down to ask the question, what in my life do I actually need to repent from and what does that look like? We don't allow ourselves to be known well enough by others uh, so that they can speak into the sins that we're blind to. We make repentance conditional upon someone else making the first move. We don't want to do it because we love ourselves. We don't want to look bad or perhaps just at the root of it, we just love our sin more than we do anything else. But these are all just excuses. And they're excuses that our passage says that are keeping us from enjoying God's promised blessing and restoration. You see, personal, regular repentance is not an interruption, a sad, disappointing interruption to experiencing the good life. It's the path to it, Chronicles says. And as I'm saying this, I don't want you to make the mistake of of sitting there thinking, well, I haven't done what Manasseh has has done. Or "I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Because while we might not resemble Manasseh in the particulars of our sin, that's not the point. Manasseh is being held up to God's people who've returned from exile, and he's saying, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard of holiness, and this is what we're called to in light of that. And if that's true, if we have fallen short, then what we need to do is to go home, open our Bibles, measure ourselves against God's word, and cry out to him that he might show us where you and I need to repent. Where we in our sin, uh, where where we're in our sin, we need uh, to ask God to enable us to turn back to him. And maybe already right now, the Holy Spirit is prodding you so you have a sense of what that might mean. Maybe that's something grievous on the scale of, of King Manasseh or maybe it's something much more ordinary. Perhaps you've sinned against your spouse or your kids or you've conducted yourself dishonestly in your employment. Maybe you've gotten in the habit of of consistently thinking or speaking ill of other people, or you've carried sinful prejudices against people who are not like you. And the question for you now from this text is this. How are you going to respond? It's not how the person beside you is going to respond, but how will you respond to your sin? Will you humble yourself before God, crying out to Him for mercy? Will you believe, as this text says, that doing that, the humble path of repentance, is the one of happiness before God? Or will you decide not to pay attention, to dismiss it, to put it off? This is the defining question of our text. Will we walk in regular repentance before the Lord and find happiness there, or won't we? Manasseh shows that God's mercy abounds to those who repent. Ammon, Manasseh's son, shows us that God's judgment awaits those who will not. Now, the account of Ammon's reign is short, but what is said is telling. Now, Ammon followed his father uh, in his father's sins, and that's bad. That's wrong. But, But there's grace for that. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that Amon does not choose to follow his father down the path of humble repentance. And as a result, rather than experiencing restoration and blessing from God as as his father had done, Amon incurred guilt more and more until God's judgment finally came upon him through Amon's servants who put him to death. And so while our passage tells us that there is great hope 
that God's mercy and his grace abounds. It's, it's, it's ex- extravagantly poured out on all who repent and believe in Christ. Yet, friend, if you would refuse to humble yourself before God in repentance, holding on to your sin, persisting in your way, not earnestly seeking to turn from it, if, if, if you would not humble yourself before God, even if you're outwardly a member of the people of God, you're on the membership rolls of the church, you stand precariously in the way of God's judgment, his full and final judgment. And so the message is simple. The good news is that God's grace is vast. It is sufficient for you. His son died on the cross to make it so. There is grace to cover every sin from Manasseh to yours. But if you want to know God's blessing, you want to know God's salvation, we must humble ourselves before God and cry out to him, walking in the path of continual repentance. May God grant it. Amen. O Father, righteous, holy, merciful Father, I ask that at this moment, the posture of our hearts would be one of humbly recognizing each of our sins for what they are. Not looking to the person beside us, not looking to the person across from us, but seeing our sin in light of your holy standard. And Lord, that the posture of our hearts would be to humbly prostrate ourselves before you. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us under a real conviction of our sin. Not in the vagaries of it, but in clear-eyed specifics. And we do this, Lord, asking that you would not let us escape from that conviction until by your Spirit's power at work in us, we would come to Christ and come to Christ as many times as needed. And that you would then help us to see his mercy and repent. To turn from our sin and to turn to you. Submitting to your way, to your rule. And that you would then give us grace to walk in a new way of obedience. Lord, may our thinking be transformed so that we would see repentance as a path to life. And joy and happiness before you. And would you do whatever is necessary to help us to walk in that path for all the days that you should give to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you please stand and sing with me our song of response, delighting in the wonderful grace of Jesus. Let's sing together.
receive now the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.